you turn in your Bible this evening to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, from time to time I like to just to, uh, look at some of the classic texts of Scripture. It's all uh, God-breathed and useful, but there are particularly verses that people have maybe memorized in, in their youth or uh, verses that are pre- uh, particularly significant. I think Jeremiah 9 is one of those. Uh, we're going to be looking specifically at uh, Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. But to catch the uh, context, which I think is very important here, we're going to begin reading uh, actually in chapter 8, verse 18. So if you have your Bible, uh, we'll start in chapter 8, verse 18. Jeremiah, as you know, is a prophet of God to the... uh, the nation of Judah, Israel has already been taken into captivity and they will never return. And uh, now to Jeremiah's horror, Judah is following in the same steps and Judah has the hard task of testifying uh, to Judah that God is going to also bring them into captivity and to bring great punishment, great discipline uh, and heartache upon them. And we catch the, the flavor of that as we pick it up. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18. This is God's word. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and the breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. You just you see the interplay of the conversation. So you've got the, the people um, grieving. Where's God? Is, is he not in Zion? And God saying, well, there's this conversation. You've provoked me to anger with carved images. And, and then Jeremiah and the people, the harvest has passed. The summer has ended. And we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow, falsehood and truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the bird of the air and the beast have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a liar of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. 
Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament and to each her neighbor a dirge for death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now to open your word and to understand its meaning, Lord, you are speaking to us, and so we thank you for that. I pray that you give us ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would um, teach us the things of God tonight so that we could be truly wise and truly rich and truly strong in the Lord our God. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. A.W. Tozer, the author of uh, a classic uh, book called Knowledge, The Knowledge of the Holy, uh, writes in that book that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The very most important thing about you, the thing that really defines who you are and certainly defines your destiny, uh, is this thing, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God. One of, the, um, one of the great tragedies of the fall, maybe the greatest tragedy of the fall, really the, the core tragedy of the fall is that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, thinking that they would become wise, that's what the devil told them, serpent told them, actually they, they lost the essence of wisdom because they, they, in a sense, lost the ability to truly, thoroughly, fully know God. That uh, sin, when it came into the world, blinds the eyes of those made in God's image. And so, and so there's this vast ignorance and, about God, about who He truly is. And even those who, 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 who do know Him, that, that's only received by grace and through faith. God has to open eyes. 
People in their native state don't know the most essential thing in all the world there is to know. They know all sorts of things about creation. They can be very bright, very brilliant people. And yet without the intervention of the Spirit of God, every single person born in this world because of the fall does not know God. That's a, that's a stunning, devastating truth. They don't know God. And so they make up gods because they, eternity has been placed in their hearts and they sense they're there has to be something, and, and they're, they're, they have this yearning to worship, and they feel a need for protection in the sense that, that there needs to be some answer, something that holds this all together, and so people create gods, and they worship those gods. But even in Christendom, there's this, there's this nasty tendency to sort of form God into our image, our likeness, a God that looks a little bit more like us and acts a little bit more like us. Mark Twain uh, being sort of a, uh, a citizen of Christendom, though certainly not a Christian, commented that uh, on the sixth day, God made man in his own image and man has been returning the favor ever since. And there's some truth to that. We tend to make God in our image and, and we're going to see that that's really what happened with Israel. And so one of the, one of the threads, if, if you enjoy following threads through Scripture, one of the threads is this concept of knowing God, the knowledge of God. Uh, that the story of redemption is, in a sense, the story of God engaging a fallen world and at work to renew um, the knowledge of God, to create a people who actually know Him. And in knowing him, love him and trust him and worship him as he truly is. That's going to be the great work of God through redemptive history. It's at the heart of the new covenant that he promises in the book of Jeremiah. If you, if you remember, um, Jeremiah 24, verse 7, God says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Again, in Jeremiah 31, no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is what God is about in the world. This is why he sent his son. That people might know God. It's the distinguishing, distinguishing mark of the new heaven and, and earth. When, when Isaiah paints a picture about the, the lion and the lamb lying down together. In Isaiah chapter 11, this is also part of that picture, verse 9 of Isaiah 11. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The new heaven and earth will be a place where everyone knows God. And not just knows God in small bits and portions, but the earth shall be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And so one of the things that, as we said, God is about is creating this knowledge. The, the uh, truth of God's people is that they are, no, they are people who've come to know God. In this life, it's the foundation and the fountain of faith. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, those who know your name shall put their trust 
in you. Those who know your name shall put their trust in you. To, to know God is to actually trust him. To trust in his goodness, to trust in his might, to trust in his word. To know God is to have absolute confidence in him. And if you lack that, where we lack a knowledge of God, it's going to be very difficult, you see, to have robust faith and, and confidence. A.W. Pink says, an unknown God can, neither be, can be neither trusted or served or worshipped. And so it's critical, I think, for the church from uh, time and again to be asking ourselves the question, how are we doing when it comes to this basic thing, the knowledge of God? Well, uh, Jeremiah 9 is a great text for that, and we need to just start out by looking at the context because this isn't just a nice verse to put up on your fridge or in some nice, you know, Christian uh, with a nice poster. You maybe have seen it there. That's fine. But, but it, this is not something to set up against a nice scenic background. It actually is against a, a horrific background. That's where you find Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It, 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 it's given in the midst of a tragic horrific historical event. Jeremiah is God's man to speak God's word to Judah, the remaining two tribes, and uh, these are the last years of their existence before they go into captivity. Jeremiah prophesies devastating judgment, and he lives to see the, the, uh, the horrors that he's prophesied. He's called the weeping prophet. It's a, it's a hard ministry. And one of the reasons it's hard, not just because Jeremiah is an Israelite, he's, he's of Judah and he, and he loves um, <clears throat> these people, but one of the reasons it's hard is because they hate his message. They're, they're highly offended by his prophecies of doom and gloom. They're absolutely confident that Jeremiah um, cannot be speaking the truth. There's all sorts of prophets, false prophets, saying, peace, peace. That God would never do this. And, and they believe those prophets. I mean, seriously, Jeremiah. We're, we're God's people. We're Abraham's descendants. We have the temple. We have the priesthood. We have the law. It is unthinkable that God would what, do what, what we read here. Make Jerusalem a heap of ruins. His city, his holy city, God is going to make his holy city a heap of ruins and Judah a desolation without inhabitants. You see, it's not just unlikely, it is impossible and it's offensive. And there's no doubt Jeremiah is prophesying awful things. Death will climb up into your windows. Cutting off the children from the streets. Leaving the dead bodies of men like dung upon the open fields, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them, presumably because there will not be enough people left alive to bury the dead. <clears throat> so it's not an easy message, and, and, and they're, they're offended. It's clear that what, what Jeremiah is saying is divine judgment. These are the sorts of things that God does to his enemies. But their God, they're convinced, was not like that. How could Jeremiah dare say, thus says the Lord? Their God was a forgiving God. Their God was a gracious God. Whatever issues that God might have with, with Israel, it would never come to this, ever. Not their God. He would never do these awful things to his people. Until he did, of course. 
until he did. Every single bit of it. How did that happen? Well, the people of God did not know their God. They didn't know their God. They assumed he was like them. They somewhat casual about holiness. Not really that concerned about wickedness. Plays favorites. They completely missed God. And that's the charge that shows up over and over again in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2, verse 7 and 8. God says, I brought you into into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophets prophesied by Baal. The whole bunch of them, you see, act as though the living God of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't exist, as if the law has no significance, as if God's being and character just simply does not matter. So Jeremiah 4.22, my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid, God says. In their sin. Jeremiah 9 verse 3. They proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, says the Lord. Jeremiah 9 6. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me. Did you sense the offense in, in the voice of God? They refuse to know me. Their ignorance is is a stubborn, willful refusal in the face of multiplied revelation. I mean, which nation in all of the world of that day had had more opportunity to truly know God than Israel? Nobody. They don't don't get an Abraham. They They don't get an Isaac and a Jacob. They don't get a Moses. Israel gets all of that. Israel gets a Mount Sinai. Israel gets a Ten Commandments. Israel gets a Joshua. Israel gets a David. Israel gets a Samuel. Over and over, you see, God is revealing himself through acts and through his word. But God says they refuse to know me. They they don't want to know me. Therefore, 9-7, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? So all that's going to happen to Judah and all that did happen to them, it's all coming because of their refusal to actually know God. Now, of course, the people would have been perplexed by that charge. How could Jeremiah say this? How could God say this? I mean, they know God. They know the Bible stories. They go to temple. They offer sacrifices. They keep Sabbath. How can Jeremiah charge them with not knowing God? God. Well, if you read the book of Jeremiah, and and from what we read already, it's evident that whatever knowledge they have of God, it's not a functioning knowledge. It's it's clear, you see, that the knowledge that God is looking for is is a knowledge that hungers for Him, a a knowledge that is is, uh, zealous for His glory in the world. It's, it's a knowledge that, that, that loves and wants to obey and be made like him and be engaged in his purposes in the world. And that's not how they were living. So that they had the religion, they, they had the temple, they had the sacrifices, they had the law, and they practiced them. And they worshiped 
Baal. And they practiced that too. And they quoted scripture and then they lied to their neighbor. You see, they, they, they say we believe in God and we know God and then they would oppress the alien, the foreigner. Their actual lived out lives were molded by the surrounding pagan culture. They looked like their pagan neighbors. Their lives weren't molded by the culture of heaven, weren't molded by the character of God. And it was supposed to be. <laughs> That's what it meant to be Israel. They're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. The, 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 the surrounding nations are supposed to be able to look into the land of Israel and, and say there's something different about this nation. There's something different about their God. They do business different than we do. They don't take advantage of people. And they have these strange sexual practices where they're, they're faithful, a husband and a wife. They don't, they don't tell dirty jokes and they don't they don't act like we do in our worship. You see, Israel was, was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Though God was not supposed to be their religious mascot. He, he was supposed to be their life. And that's God's complaint against his people. <clears throat> that that they, do, they do not know him in the sense of, of love him. They, they don't delight in his being. They don't relish his person, his character. They don't treasure his holiness. They don't worship his justice and grace and truth. And they don't live like any of those things have any meaning for their lives at all. <clears throat> I think it's critical that we hear that. Because friends, we, we do live in a day and in a religious atmosphere where these charges ring ominously true. I've, I've read this quote before from David Wells. There are many I could read. But I think this captures it. David Wells says, It's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. He says, I don't mean that he's ethereal, but that he's become so unimportant. He rests upon the world. And I, say we could, I think we could say he rests upon the church so inconsequentially as not to be noticed. Those who assure the pulses of their belief in God's existence nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That's weightlessness. You see, it's, a, it's people who say they know God, they believe God, and yet their lives are actually being molded by the surrounding pagan culture, not by the culture of heaven or the character of God. And I can tell you, friends, that Christians around the world look at the American church and are concerned. They are. Who has had more opportunity to know God than the American Christian? With what we have in terms of literature, books, conferences, churches, seminars. There's no nation in the history of the world that has had more access to spiritual truth than the American church. And the affluence to buy these things and participate in these things. And you can press it a little closer. Who has been given more revelation, more teaching than a person born and raised and taught Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in a reformed or biblical church? I mean, who, who is, who's been more blessed 
than so many of us born and raised in faithful churches, biblical churches. And we've had so much truth given to us. And to whom much is given, much is required. I, don't, I think we just need to hear God's charge and his offense with Israel of old and, and not just immediately roll out from under it. The knowledge of God is a holy thing. It's a precious thing. And God is offended when we take it lightly. But in the midst of God's judgment, there's this, this beautiful invitation. This invitation to, to actually know him. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. The word boast here, we use boast as a synonym for bragging. In the Bible, boasting is what you put your trust in, what you rely on, where where your confidence is. And you see, that's exactly what was was happening. Judah was relying on her wisdom, uh, that she has the spiritual insight of of God's revelation. They they had the law of God, and, and they... They liked having the law of God. They relied on having the law of God. They boasted in it. Romans 2.23, the Apostle Paul reveals their hypocrisy and their false hope when he says, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. The law was their confidence when it was supposed to be convicting them and bringing them to see their need for a Savior. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Israel wasn't as strong as they were, obviously, back in the days of David and Solomon, but they still had a mighty strong wall surrounding the city, and, and uh, were confident that um, it would be sufficient. And their riches weren't as they had been in the days of King Solomon, but there had always been enough to buy off either the, the, the attackers or to uh, buy the help of uh, Egypt. It always seemed to work. And, and God says, you see, all of that was an offense to him. And all of it's going to be of no avail when judgment comes. The riches and the, and the, and the might, uh, the wisdom, all of it was utterly useless in the presence of divine judgment. As I was just studying this again, I just thought, you know, think about our country. There's a, there's a certain wickedness, a desperate wickedness, really, you could say, where we do put our trust as a nation in our military ability, our financial ability, our might, our wisdom, our riches, and we trust that that's going to be sufficient. And, and boy, as Christians, we just need to, to remember um, that if God decides to discipline this country, as he so justly deserves to do, and none of that's going to matter a hill of beans. Not against God. And all of these things, to the point, are, are powerless to protect sinners from judgment. And so there's only one thing that'll help, and God points them to that. There's only one legitimate boast one rock for refuge, and that is that he understands and knows me. Let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That word understand is important there. That he understand and know me. Now you might say, well, that's not possible. God is incomprehensible. Who can understand God? Who who can fathom all the glory and the majesty and the mystery of God? Well, obviously no human being can. But but God has revealed himself. And God desires, you see, to be understood. To be known so that we, in a sense, get him. 
We know what he's like. And we're in line with what he's, what he's like. We want to know what he's like. There are marriages where, um, you see, a husband will know his wife. Bobby, he knows her name. He knows all th- sorts of things about her. But, but her complaint is, he doesn't get me. He doesn't understand me. He doesn't know what I like. He doesn't know what I, doesn't really care about what I think. He doesn't care about how I feel. It's not just that he doesn't share my passions. He seems oblivious to them and uninterested in learning them. And obviously the same happens between, I mean, the other way around. Wives and husbands can both feel this way. But that's exactly what it's about. That's how Israel's been living with God. They're interested in what he has to provide, but they're not interested in him. They're busy doing things, making money and, and getting along in this world. So, so what God is like and what God is, desires, what he's passionate for and what, what God is doing, that's not on the table. That's not really what concerns them. And it's offensive in the same way it's offensive to a marriage, to a spouse in a marriage. It's offensive. And yet God invites wicked Israel to repent. He wants them to know what he's like. Notice that I am the Lord who. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. The word steadfast love here, you've heard it before, but there's no English equivalent for this word. It's such a rich multifaceted words translated in different in, in different bible translations uh, they'll they'll use various words kindness loving kindness unfailing devotion merciful love but it, it's all getting around this idea that that the lord intentionally deals with people sinners not according to their merit but but out of his delight to show kindness and mercy, his, his, his devotion and his love, that, that God leans forward in mercy towards the downcast and the brokenhearted and those weighed down by sin or sorrow and, or pressed by enemies. You just see that, that that's the nature of God. He's good. He's kind. He's so kind. And that kindness is is woven through with righteousness and justice. It, and th- those can be somewhat scary, hard-edged words, but it just means that, that God acts always according to what is right, what is right and good and true, what, what reflects his character and being and his, his purposes. See, those two go together. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And God wants you to know that about him. These are, these are not just attributes of God. They're dynamic words. They describe what he does, how he, how he engages in the world. This is what he delights in. This is what he desires. He delights in, in every manifestation of this and every imitation of his acts. So in Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and, and what does the Lord require of you? What does he require of you? To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. God wants his people to reflect his character, his being. 
He wants them to know him. Well, how do we do this as we wrap up as 21st century Christians? We have just two things. I think the one, the first thing we need is just to sense the threat, if I can say that, to feel the warning here. To ask yourself, do I really know the Lord? Because it's, it's evident. You can know all sorts of things about God, and yet you don't get him. There's not a, there's not a longing to know him. There's not a, there's not a hunger to, to be like him. I mean, does the reality of God's being and his works and his words, is that, does that have any real impact in how you do your life in what comes out of your mouth and how you make your plans and what you pursue and what you watch with your eyes and how you act with your sexual organs and, and how you treat strangers and what you do for people in need. Because Jesus says on the last day, there'll be many, many who say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. I didn't know you and you didn't know me. And we just, just not miss the, the, the warning here. I remember I, I, I shared this years ago. This has to be at least 15 years ago. I was um, buying tickets for a Gaither concert. Many of you know this story. I was downtown Van Andel Arena standing in line waiting for the, for the um, ticket office to open up and standing there with a bunch of other Christians and they're talking about various Christian artists that they've seen and um, just having a conversation together. And then the window opens up and I'm about five back and so I wait. And I'm just noticing that these uh, these people are not very nice. Uh, they're demanding. Um, they've got just this, this, this superior, self-righteous attitude about them as they're talking to the lady behind the glass who doesn't look like she's a Christian. She just looks rough. And so when I finally got to the glass, I sort of mumbled an apology and bought my tickets and, and I went home. But it just bugged me. It got in my conscience. So I called, I called Vanandel and I found out what her name was and found out when she's working tomorrow. And I said, I just need to talk to this lady. And so the next day I got her on the phone. And I said, you know, I was there yesterday. I was standing in line. I'm sure you don't remember me. But I was, I was surprised by the behavior of, of the people in line with me. I said, is, is that normal? You know what she said? She says, it's absolutely Norman, uh, normal. The Christians are the worst. The Christians are the worst. And that broke my heart. Paul says to the Jewish leaders in Romans chapter 2, that you boast in the law, but you don't keep the law. In fact, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I think there's, a, uh, there's some truth to that right here in West Michigan. That there are people who say, uh, you know, I, I know lots of Christians. Uh, I have no interest in their God if that's what he's like. And you see, that's exactly the sin of Israel. The nations around said, oh, if that's what a God, if that's... Uh, whoever the, your Jehovah is, you know, you can tell us about what he says in his book, but as I look at your life and I look at your self-righteousness, I look at the way you hate Gentiles, the way you oppress the poor, um, the way you're just as wicked and, and greedy and sexually immoral as, as everybody else that I know, I have no interest in your God. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, Peter, Paul says, because of you. So friends, I just, 
I would encourage us to, to let the weight of this settle. Because no one's been as blessed as much as we've been blessed. But does it really actually matter to you? To know God. And then what does knowing God look like? Well, obviously, knowing God has always meant uh, receiving and believing God's self-revelation. It's, it's just receiving and believing his self-revelation. What God has actually said here. And, and we got to do that in a blizzard, you see, of false prophets out there. People who will promise you that your God is not like the God that we read about here in Jeremiah 9. That God would never do these things to his people. That their God, the God that they believe in, you see, is a God of grace and only grace. And a God of love and only love. And God would never do such things. There, there are a dime a dozen out there. And people believe it. And so the threats from Scripture have just run off their back like water off a duck's back. You say, you can't talk to me about judgment. You can't talk to me about any real threat or warning. My God isn't like that. My God would never do that until, until he does. That's what we're, in. That's what we're in up against. So it's, it's always, you see, receiving and believing this, self-revelation of God. And this, you see, points us to the fullest revelation of God, which is Jesus Christ himself. For God, who said, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we can say to anybody confidently, if you want to know God, he's revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ, his son, and that means we also need to be able to say, willing to say, and if you don't know Jesus Christ as son, you don't really know God, not, not the way he needs, intends to be known. But God has so graciously revealed himself in his son, just this Jesus who was Lord. I am the Lord. Jesus is Lord, creator, sustainer, ruler of life. Jesus, who is the revelation of the kindness of God. Paul writes in Titus 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's God. See, that just destroys all self-righteousness. That destroys all pride all boasting in, in anything that we do or think or say. When the loving kindness and the goodness of God our Savior appeared, he saved a wretch like me and a wretch like you. Not because of anything done in you, but because of his mercy. That's our God. And yet in that same gracious, merciful event, God has manifested his righteousness and his justice. Romans 3.21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though those prophets and the law testify to it, that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God puts his obedient son to death and justice and mercy are satisfied at the cross. And so Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 1, because of him, the Father's mercy, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let that be your only confidence. Let that be your only, only confidence. Jesus Christ. Because you see, to know God in Christ is life itself. Jesus says in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, he says, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know 
God through Jesus Christ. And the wonderful promise that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that one day, one day, friends, we're going to know him fully. Now we, now we know in part. We know according to his revelation, and we can believe it completely, but we, we're not going to experience the full glory of, the, of God and our Savior until one day when all sin is washed away and, and our eyesight is, is opened like we've never imagined before. We'll, we'll have no, more experiential, true knowledge of God in the first five seconds of eternity than, we, than we've had in our entire lifetime. And we get to do all through eternity. See, then we shall know even as we are fully known. And so, friend, I, I just want to place before you this thing. Do you know God? Do you understand and know God? Is there anything in you that resonates with that, that, that you want to know God, that you have a deep sense within you that nothing else actually really matters? That, that, that you, could, you could wipe everything away from your life, but if you had this one thing, you would still have life. And yet, if you take this one thing away, if God closes your eyes so you don't know God, you don't see Jesus, you don't delight in all that he is and all that he's done, if, if that's taken away, then you're dead no matter what you have in life. And just to ask yourself, see, it doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter what you know here. It, it does matter, but it doesn't matter fundamentally. The Jews knew all sorts of things. And if you sense that your heart is dead to God, friend, don't settle for that. Would you please just beg God to just show me your glory. God, I want to know you. That you are God who delights in your steadfast love and kindness and mercy in Jesus Christ. Pray to know him. God delights in that prayer. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, on a very normal mundane Sunday evening we, we touch eternal things Father we have to confess that we don't understand the glory of knowing you even though we, we acknowledge and confess that it, it is the glory of heaven to know Jesus and to know the Father through him perfectly with no stain of sin Father, now we were weighed down by sin and guilt and fear and shame and, and ignorance. And we are weighed down by a flesh that has no interest in knowing God, would much rather watch sports or play video games or look at the stock market. And Father, we, we confess that we have taken lightly this most precious holy thing. And it's reflected in our impatience, our anger. It's reflected in our lust. The ways that we're influenced by the consumerism and eroticism and materialism of the world in which we live. And Father, we, we confess it and we ask you to forgive us. And give us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, a deep hunger to really know and understand you. That nothing else really matters in all the world. Father, we can't create that in our own hearts. We can't create it in the hearts of those we love. I pray, Lord, for children raised in this church who, who know the answers to the catechism questions and have memorized scripture but are not giving evidences that they know God. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd be gracious to them. And maybe there's parents and adults here as well who honestly would have to say, I don't think I know God that way. 
And Father, on this very normal, ordinary Sunday night, I pray that if that's true, that you'd give the grace to, to confess it as true and then turn to you, to Christ, and have the miracle of eyes being opened and, and a heart being changed and a mind now enlightened so that they know you, that we know you, and we grow in that knowledge until we see Jesus face to face. May our lives be molded, O oh God, by your character, your being, your promises and purposes. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.